Welcome to the CEC Report. It's the 12th of April. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by CEC Leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. In this week's CEC Report, here it is. An Australian Glass-Steagall bill to separate banks from speculation. And Syria is a deliberate lie that is leading to nuclear world war. Um, Craig, the Syria thing is very, very serious, but we're going to start with the financial issue first because, as we always say, it's the state of the financial system globally that's driving this war danger anyway. Mm -hmm. There's always this connection between depressions and wars, right? And you see that connection now. We need to start addressing the financial crisis, and that's what the first, this first um, segment of this show is going to be about. And then we'll get onto the Syria issue. So first, here it is, an Australian Glass-Steagall bill to separate banks from speculation. And what we've got that Craig's just held up is the draft legislation that we have been working on very carefully. It's taken a while, so we've finally released it, not before time, but we had to get it right, as you can, you know, you'd expect, right? So this is well-drafted, carefully drafted legislation. It's modelled on the United States Glass-Steagall Act and the proposed 21st Century Glass-Steagall Act. I'll just say quickly, the difference between those two acts was what happened in 2008 was caused by a lot of crazy exotic instruments in the, in the world of derivatives that didn't exist in 1933 with the original Act. Mm -hmm. So the authors of the 21st Century Glass-Steagall Act have updated the bill based on that experience, but the essence of the bill is the same. And Robbie, we produced this legislation in the form of a 12-page flyer. We call it a flyer, it's more like a booklet, but a booklet, yeah. in the front of it we have what's what usually goes with Australian legislation, which is an explanatory memorandum. And this is what people should call in for on our 1800 number and get copies of. It's free. We would like you to get copies, read it and get as many copies as possible. We'll say more about that in a minute. But it definitely is a very, very powerful piece of uh, legislation and a very powerful intervention into the current state of financial affairs in the context also the Royal Bank, the, the, the Royal Commission into Banking and so forth. No, that's right. We had, and we'll talk about that, we had um, started drafting this earlier, Craig, but um, when the APRA bill was passed in February, right, as we all know, that, that gives APRA these bail-in powers, um, and it was just waved through with seven senators present, etc., um, we started working renewed on this in earnest because this is the solution to that, right? If you're concerned about APRA being able to bail in your deposits, this is the solution. This will protect our economy from a bail-in. It'll protect your deposits from a bail-in. It'll protect our economy from a crash because it puts the instruments, the, the, the financial sector that's all risky on, a, on the other side of a firewall that protect and, and keeps the real economy protected. And, Robbie, specifically in context of our last mobilisation, what we've done with this bill is we've made APRA accountable to the Australian Parliament. Yes. Brought it in out of being a, a completely autonomous organisation into the control of the Parliament. And also we've dictated in this legislation that it cannot be subject to any foreign entity, the Bank of International Settlements, the Bank of England or anyone else. In other words, we're expressing here in this bill that the principle that we believe is that banking is a sovereign issue, whether that be the internal banking or, for example, national banking. Yeah. We don't go through in great detail in this legislation because we can't the fact that we do need a national bank. Well, we let me just ask you on that because that, that's what I wanted to raise now. We get a lot of feedback from people who agree with us completely on Glass-Steagall, but then they say, but, you know, is that enough? And we ourselves say, Craig, Glass-Steagall won't fix everything, 
but it is an important first step. So describe what we would do next. Well, Robbie, back in, uh, in, in 1994, we actually wrote legislation for a national bank. It was modelled on, the, it, was, it was called the Commonwealth National Credit Bank, right? And the idea back then was to take the Commonwealth Bank and convert it into a fully-fledged national bank of which it would absorb the Reserve Bank and take back all the powers that have been sort of ceded away yeah. over the years. Now, unfortunately, in 1998, of course, the private Commonwealth Bank was sold off. It was privatised, done deliberately in order to destroy the long, long legacy that we've had through the Commonwealth Bank of an, as an expression as a national bank. So what we are in the process of doing now is reconstructing that or rewriting that legislation we wrote in 1994 to establish a national bank in our country. Because a national bank is a bank that comes under the sovereign control of the government to issue credit into the productive sectors of the economy, but also to control the private banking system, yep. which is a big deal. Because if you go back into the 1930s and the 1940s and then the 1950s with Ben Chifley and these guys, you'll find that uh, you know, the issue of banking, if it's left to the private banking, yep is a destructive influence on the economy. And lo and behold, look what we see today with the global speculation and the, the problems that we have. So in terms of Glass-Steagall, it establishes a very important principle that there's two levels to the financial system. One is protected, it's the real economy. The speculative stuff is not. But what, what, what Glass-Steagall doesn't do is make sure the real economy actually works, and that's what a national bank does. Well, that's does. the next step, Robbie, because yeah, we're, we're in such a, a debt-filled uh, world, we need to have new sources of credit, but not to fund speculation. We've got to get rid of the speculation, which is what the Glass-Steagall bill does, and then we have to fund real economic development. I mean, there's just been discussions today about building a, a long-awaited rail system from Tullamarine into the Melbourne city area. I mean, for goodness sake, this should have been built 20 years ago. And with a national bank, these things can be funded very easily. That's the point. Now, just back to the Glass-Steagall bill, though, Craig, That's this is our baby at the moment. This is what we've just produced. We need everybody to join the fight to get this passed. Now, I want to make a point here. Long-term viewers of this show have heard us appeal, especially in the last six months when we did the APRA bill, and we appealed and we appealed for you to get involved. And it works. What you have to understand is it works. What, I'll just give you an example. When We know that when the APRA bill passed, Craig, a lot of people had about 2,000 people, at least we know, at least had got involved and had made calls. Our sense is that when it did pass, there was possibly a lot of viewers and readers of our stuff, etc., who hadn't, who suddenly decided to, because politicians were swamped in the days after it passed with angry calls. And we know they were swamped and they were freaked and they were contacting us and saying, what's going on here? It got to them. That's what happens when people mobilise en masse, it gets to them. So that's the point. It works. So what we need you to do is, as Craig said, call in, get a copy and copies of this, it's for you to read, but it's for you to take to your Member of Parliament or send to your Member of Parliament, and as a citizen saying, I want you to introduce this bill and support it and pass it, right? We will build a coalition, a bipartisan coalition this way, of sitting MPs who will agree, there's a lot of them who agree on Glass-Steagall, I know that to be true, but with enough um, of the their community behind them, they will step out of their comfort zone, knowing there's a financial crash happening, and say, well, what's the, what's the argument against doing this? Let's do it. And we can shake up the system in this country, but it requires everybody actually getting involved. And don't say, oh, you know, it's too powerful, right? And talk yourself out of it. Do it, and let's watch what happens. Now, we're going to take a quick break and address this question after the break of what are the vested interests we're up against, and can we actually take, you know, defeat them?
Welcome back to the CEC report where we're talking, here it is, an Australian Glass-Steagall bill to separate banks from speculation. Before the break, we we're talking about the fact that we need everyone to get involved, but don't, don't talk yourself out of it by thinking, yeah, we're up against the banks, they're so powerful. Are the banks the most powerful vested interest in the world? Of course they are. That goes without saying. But are they all powerful? No, nothing is all powerful. And in the United Kingdom, Craig, in the last election last year, Jeremy Corbyn tried to say this. Ye are many, they are few. That's the, that's the principle people got to have in mind. One thing that you've got to understand is assisting us now in Australia in this cause is the Royal Commission. The Royal Commission has suddenly unmasked the banks and shown them up to be criminal enterprises. So that helps our campaign for Glass-Steagall. There's two things that have come out in the Royal Commission. One, how massive the mortgage fraud is. That underpins 50% of the financial system, Craig. I did the calculations. 50% is based on just pure fraud, as the Royal Commission has shown. Only Glass-Steagall is going to protect us from the crash that's inevitable as a result of that. The second is vertical integration. All the looting that, that banks do to their customers, it's on the record that that's allowed by vertical integration because one part of the bank can say, all, the, all these different businesses of banks have, they say, oh, let's grab the depositors and you know, fleece them, right? Glass-Steagall will protect us from that. Now, the Royal Commission has had a third impact. It shocked many of the members of Parliament you're going to be talking to. They accepted their leaders' words that, oh, we don't need a Royal Commission, everything's fine, um, the banks are the best regulated in the world. They've got a Royal Commission anyway, and in two weeks... They've seen what crooks they are. A lot of MPs are shocked. And I want to play a video now. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's um, the last time Wayne Byers, the chairman of APRA, on the 27th of March, turned up to the House Economics Committee to give testimony. A Liberal chair, Sarah Henderson, who's a Liberal, that's the Bankers' Party, grills him on what is your role in the banks that has led to what's been exposed in the Royal Commission. Just, well, just watch this performance. She's very polite, but she's so persistent, it's not funny, especially to buyers. Have a quick look. Look, I'd like to begin by uh, making reference to the Royal Commission and the evidence before the Royal Commission. And I want to quote from the Australian Financial Review in an article in, uh, dated the 23rd of March. Over the past two weeks, the Commission heard evidence pointing to fraud and bribery at National Australia Bank, failures by Westpac to verify customer income and by ANZ to verify customer expenses, problems with the CBA's monitoring of mortgage brokers, delays by NAB and Westpac regarding and responding to re regulatory concerns, credit card oversights by Westpac and CBA, inappropriate car loans by Westpac and ANZ, and various internal control errors at CBA and ANZ. Uh, Mr Byers, what do you have to say about these matters and the evidence that's been given before the Royal Commission? Oh, well, I, th I think it's clearly um, a di very disappointing set of outcomes. Uh, it's not entirely surprising. As I said, we have been calling out poor residential lending standards for some time and the need for those to be lifted. Uh, and the individual case studies um, show the industry in a very poor light. I don't think there's any other way that you can describe the picture that's been painted. So in light of APRA's role to enforce the prudential standards of the banks, uh, you know, we've seen uh, and heard a lot of very concerning conduct in the Royal Commission. Uh, does that not demonstrate perhaps that APRA could have been doing a better job in this regard? Uh, well, I think, uh, so to step back, the issues that um, 
have been the primary focus of the Royal Commission to this point have largely been adherence with responsible lending obligations in the, uh, in the law. Uh, those laws are administered by ASIC, and so in the first instance, uh, those are matters for ASIC, and as a general principle, issues of conduct uh, instances of fraud will be pursued by the corporate regulator and potentially by the police, as some of these cases have been. The prudential interest, uh, and I, in saying those opening, those opening few sentences, I'm not implying we don't have an interest in these issues. We do have an interest in these issues. The prudential interest in these issues is trying to understand uh, the extent to which um, they indicate failings in the governance and oversight uh, and accountability within organisations, and then the extent to which those failings or shortcomings or areas for improvement might jeopardise the prudential soundness of those institutions. So I just want to go back to the question that I asked. Uh, do you believe that APRA could have been doing a better job in relation to these matters? Uh, well, it, it, on the individual cases, it's not necessarily been, as I said, it's not necessarily been our job to pursue the individual cases. And I think in most of those cases, uh, ASIC has been pursuing those issues and has sought or uh, ensured there was compensation for the individual customers. But the That's evidence their job. talking about systemic issues across the banks. These are not just individual cases. But we're talking about not just lending standards, we're talking about fraud, bribery, conflicts of interest, mm -hmm. uh, regulatory concerns, credit card oversights, inappropriate car loan borrowings, other internal control areas. We're talking about a very wide range of conduct, uh, which obviously should be of uh, very major concern to APRA. And I would like to return to my question and ask you again, uh, do you believe that APRA could have done a better job in relation to these matters that have been aired in the Royal Commission? What we observe in the industry... Can I just challenge you on that, though? Yeah. Because when it comes to prudential standards and, and lending yep. standards, uh, surely if there are systems at the banks which are such that income and expenses of borrowers are not being properly verified, and, and, and these are systemic issues, then these are absolutely matters for APRA, surely. Well, APRA has very strong powers of enforcement, and um, I think there's a view in some sections of the community that um, they have not been appropriately used. And we see the example just today that Westpac has announced it's tightening, tightening up its requirements in relation to the income and spending information borrowers are required to provide when seeking a property loan. Now that appears to be in direct response to the matters raised by the Royal Commission and not because of anything that APRA's done. Uh, do you, would you accept perhaps that APRA has not been tough enough with the banks in relation to these matters? So Craig, that's very significant when Liberal MPs are actually putting the, holding the banks to account now, right? That's what we have to work with. You, the people who are watching this show, get involved in this campaign. Let's get these guys to pass Glass-Steagall. So we'll take a break and when we come back, we've got to discuss Syria. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Finally, Syria is a deliberate lie that is leading to nuclear world war. 
And Craig, instead of us telling the viewers, I want to play a video now from Fox News in America, which is a right-wing station that cheerled the Iraq war, but it proves that there are Americans who also learned from that disaster. Listen to what Tucker Carlson had to say about what you've been spoon-fed about Syria right now. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Leaders on both sides of the aisle in Congress, in the media, in our intelligence services, in virtually every overfunded think tank in Washington, have suddenly aligned tonight on a single point of agreement. America must go to war in Syria immediately. Bashar al-Assad cannot continue to lead that country. He must be overthrown. Assad is an evil man, they tell us. His latest crime is a chlorine gas attack carried out over the weekend by his forces against a rebel-held suburb of Damascus. Assad's poison gas suffocated children. Pictures of the aftermath of that are all over the Internet, and they are horrifying. Assad is a monster. That's the official story. Almost everyone in power claims to believe it. The push to war in Syria, by the way, has united politicians from both sides. Lindsey Graham and Howard Dean typically agree on very little. Not much at all. But today, they are both calling for war in Syria. Graham is demanding massive attacks on the Syrian military. Dean is going even further than that. On Twitter, he called the president, quote, a wimp for merely sending thousands of troops and launching tons of bombs at Syria. That's not enough for Howard Dean, who, as you may remember, once ran for president as the peace candidate. Tonight, he wants total war in Syria. Television pundits, of course, strongly agree. This morning, the foreign policy team over on MSNBC explained that it's far more important for American troops to fight in Syria than it is to secure our own border here in America. Watch. There's no question that now, uh, all these years later, it is Donald Trump's, Donald Trump's challenge. He has to take action. He's right. spoken to Macron. What he ought to do is a coordinated action. There has to be a comprehensive response. As Trump leaves to fight his imaginary border war, he's leaving the real war where we can make a difference and said he's turning it over to Assad and to Iran and to ISIS. This is something that Barack Obama wouldn't even do if, if confronted with these set of facts. Trump has to take action in Syria, everyone nods sagely. That ought to make you nervous. Universal bipartisan agreement on anything is usually the first sign that something deeply unwise is about to happen, if only because there is nobody left to ask skeptical questions. And we should be skeptical of this, starting with the poison gas attack itself. All the geniuses tell us that Assad killed those children. But do they really know that? Of course they don't really know that. They're making it up. They have no real idea what happened. Actually, both sides in the Syrian civil war possess chemical weapons. How would it benefit Assad using chlorine gas last weekend? Well, it wouldn't. Assad's forces have been winning the war in Syria. The administration just announced its plans to pull American troops out of Syria, having vanquished ISIS. That's good news for Assad, and about the only thing he could do to reverse it and to hurt himself would be to use poison gas against children. Well, he did it anyway, they tell us. He's that evil. Please, keep in mind this is the same story they told us last April. Do you remember that? It was almost exactly a year ago. The new administration announced it was no longer seeking to depose Assad from power. Regime change was no longer our policy. So the usual war chorus in Washington started yelping, went berserk, and days later, Assad supposedly used sarin gas against civilians in Syria. There was video. We bombed a Syrian airbase in response to that. At the time, this show asked what seemed like the obvious question, are we really sure that Assad did that? It seems weirdly timed and counterproductive to him. 
Shut up, they explained. Of course we're sure. What an unpatriotic question. But of course they were lying. Two months ago, the Secretary of Defense admitted that actually we still have no proof that Assad used sarin gas last year. The story, it turns out, was propaganda. It was designed to manipulate Americans, just like so much of what they say. We've seen this movie before, and we know how it ends. But just for the sake of argument, let's assume they're not lying this time. Let's assume Assad did just use chlorine gas against kids. He's perfectly capable of that, by the way, not defending his moral character. Let's say he did do it. Would that be worth starting a new war over? Overthrowing Assad's regime in Syria would result in chaos. Many thousands would die. In fact, we might likely see the genocide of one of the last remaining Christian communities in the Middle East, and we ought to care about that. Some of the dead, of course, would be American servicemen. A new war would cost us tens of billions of dollars, maybe hundreds of billions. Would it make America safer? Would it make the region more stable? Let's see, how exactly did regime change work in Iraq and Libya? Doesn't matter say our moral leaders on CNN and everywhere else. Atrocities like this cannot be tolerated. Okay, but let's be real. We do tolerate atrocities like this all the time. For example, there's a devastating famine killing children in Yemen right now. The Saudis are causing that famine. Should we drop tomahawks on Riyadh in response? Not until it's on YouTube, apparently, when you conduct foreign policy by viral video, pictures are essential. But in real life, Syria is a highly complicated place. With Assad gone, who would run it exactly? Do we have another strongman in place to install? Or is it our hope that a stable democracy will magically appear in the wake of this protracted civil war? And who exactly are these moderate rebels you're always hearing about, the ones that we're supporting with your tax dollars? Well, a lot of them turn out to be Islamist crazies. For example, the city where the chemical attack just occurred is mostly controlled by the Army of Islam. It's a radical group that has called for establishing an Islamic state under Sharia law in Syria. That group's founder called for exterminating all Shia Muslims and Alawites from the country. But we're supposed to wage a new war on this group's behalf. Why is that exactly? Back in 2013, when the Syrian civil war was still in its early days, one onlooker weighed in on Twitter. Here's part of what he wrote, quote, we should stay the hell out of Syria. The rebels are just as bad as the current regime. What will we get for our lives and billions of dollars? Zero. In another tweet, he said this, quote, let the Arab League take care of Syria. Why are these rich Arab countries not paying us for the tremendous cost of such an attack? And in yet another tweet, he said this, what will we get for bombing Syria beside more debt and a possible long-term conflict? Of course, you know who wrote that? It was Donald Trump, and he was right. And that's one of the reasons he got elected president. And now the same people who brought you a dying American middle class, undefended American borders, and endless pointless wars in countries you could not find on a map are telling the president he's got to depose Assad for reasons that are both unclear and demonstrably dishonest. And by the way, it may happen. But before it does, Congress ought to consider a brand new constitutional amendment. Let's call it the Lindsey Graham Amendment. And here's what it would say. Congress shall topple no government until it finishes rebuilding the last government it toppled. And furthermore, talk show generals shall be required to personally visit the battlefield of every war they advocate for. End of amendment. That would have an immediate and positive effect. Let's hope it passes. So, Craig, that's crystal clear. Yes, Robbie. Look, the intensity of the lying that's going on underpins the desperation that these guys are about the global financial crisis. We've made that point very, very clear in the past. This is a really, really serious issue, and I hope the hell it doesn't come to anything. Yeah. So, read 
about what we've discussed today in our Australian Alert Service, as usual, which is where we report in depth, call in and get a free copy of that. But more importantly, get involved in our campaign for Glass-Steagall legislation for Australia. Thanks for watching this week's CEC report.